Today, we have what I'm going to call a very deep and important dive into questions of how we really need to address affordable housing in a more permanent way. And Julius Kimbrough is on the forefront of investigations for how to do that in this region. So with a project in the Lower Ninth Ward, a project in the Central Business District, and more to come, other projects, um, they are looking at how do you do this, not with any kind of time limit, but where you can create housing, whether it's um, separate buildings or it's condos that will give more people an opportunity to live and stay in this city, even if their income source is, is um, you know, not at that 1% CEO level. So I'm very excited uh, for us to have him on the show. And then we're going to follow him with um, a short piece with uh, Monique Vordan, who's going to tell us about a fabulous event that is happening on the 16th at a place kind of oddly named, but for a reason called Crevasse 22 River House, which is an art site in St. Bernard Poitras area. And it's only about 25, it's about 25 minutes from the French Quarter. Uh, so 12 to five, you're gonna wind up there. So be sure and tune in to the show this Friday at noon and hear what they have to say. And now here's Julius. Um, I have with me Julius Kimbrough, who is I would have to say one of the leading people in town who have kept a community development corporation going for how long? CCCLT, Crescent City Community Land Trust has existed since 2011 and I have been responsible since 2015. I just lost your video. Whatever you just did, I have no image of you in front of me. Oh, I am so sorry. There yes, you that thank you. Yes, so... Board and I have been working together since 2015. Um, first of all, uh, tell me the circumstances under which you that prompted you to create one. And um, a lot of people, I think those people who work with community development corporations, of course, understand what they are and what they do and why they're important. And a lot of people don't. So let's just introduce folks very simply to what um, your kind of an organization is responsible for achieving? Sure. So uh, CDCs, Community Development Corporations, were generally conceived, I do believe, in the 60s as a response to uh, urban, the need to uh, redevelop urban sites and urban locations as the um, country developed the expressway system as the general American impulse for bigger, better, newer played out with the uh, post-World War II generations. Uh, as the expressways were built, people began to leave the urban core and over time, uh, housing and infrastructure and resources in cities began to decline. And so uh, CDCs began to be launched in the 60s and 70s, and they are generally charged, they generally take on responsibility for creating uh, affordable housing, um, even as the economic and demographic forces, white flight, that I was just talking about the four different forces I mentioned, including white flight 
happened in the cities, uh, market rate housing, upper income housing was still being produced in sufficient quantities to meet the demand and what already existed in those categories was still being maintained. But as it, occurred, as it applied to affordable housing, that was, on the, that was not being maintained or produced at sufficient levels, particularly single family home ownership. And so I think it's accurate to say that most of the public housing that used to exist was built in the 30s, 40s, 50s. By the 60s, 70s, it was beginning to decline. Uh, at the same time, advocates began to realize that rental affordable housing was not the only option, was an inadequate option. And so uh, CDCs grew to focus on producing single family affordable housing. The community land trust model, Crescent City Community Land Trust is a CLT, which is a subset of the traditional community development corporation or CDC field <clears throat> have actually been around uh, for a long time, depending on the, the perspective you take. And so, you know, CLTs, community land trusts participate in what we call shared equity within the shared equity umbrella. You have co-ops, you have condominiums, cooperative housing, condominiums, community land trust homes, and other forms of shared equity ownership. Uh, CLTs really began to blossom in the 70s around the same time as CDCs. What they offered that is distinct is cooperative forms of communities holding single family affordable housing in permanent affordability. So the traditional CDC will produce a single family affordable house. They subsidize it once. Eventually the homeowner, uh, all of the subsidy used to produce the affordability in that house accrues to the homeowner, the purchaser. And it's theirs, fee simple, very traditional American way of holding real estate. In contrast, the community land trust affordable home in a given neighborhood is permanently affordable. And that is done through the CLT holding the land underneath the, the house and then leasing the improvements or the home to the buyer, who of course is gonna pay a lesser amount than the house next door where that buyer owns house and land. The CLT house is permanently affordable because the CLT is there um, holding the land and the contract between the lease, the, the, the owner of the home or the improvements in the ground clearly spells out that the intent of the relationship is to maintain affordability in perpetuity. And there's a formula built into that ground lease to allow uh, for the buyer of the improvements or the house on top of the land to have some predictability around what the future value or price of the home, what their expected return can be, which again is gonna be less than the person who owns the house fee simple next door. Just as we all know, a condo in a given neighborhood is worth less than a fee simple or market rate home ownership structure. Uh, I think of the community land trust single family affordable home as a single family affordable detached condominium. And I say detached because most condos are part of a multifamily structure. So think of a, a CLT home, an affordable CLT home as a condo turned into a single family house. 
So um, first of all, I'm going to put that explanation in my personal encyclopedia because it was um, uh, the most clear and, and as complicated as it may seem if unless you follow it carefully. Um, that was very helpful. Um, I actually did not know that it was linked to the expressways and um, the expressways impact because we, we have discovered, of course, that um, major... Um, well, you know, it could be natural, it could be urban, uh, but a, a lot of times there are unintended consequences. And I always think of the example of kudzu, which was brought in to protect the land and it wound up eating it up. And I've seen these big mounds of kudzu in Mississippi. So I, I, I really understand what that means, but I'm fascinated on the other hand about this, the uh, exactly what you're describing is a, a, a approach that not knowing it existed already, after Katrina, I thought was the, the right model for redeveloping neighborhoods. Cause I thought, what if the owners of properties on a block, and this is slightly different from what you were talking about, but related. What if the owners of properties on a given block where let's say a third or half of the houses were um, uh, affected negatively, either destroyed or just in really bad shape. What if the, uh, the owners of those properties in that block got together and formed a condo and sponsored, uh, you, you, I can't hear you, you just uh, muted. A condo association? Yeah. Right, I, what if they got together and created a condo association? Yeah. In the analogy you're creating, the, the community land trust is the condo association, so you're on the right path. Exactly, I, I didn't know it existed already. And um, to me, that was a way of preventing wholesale gentrification and having other people and these various um, uh, development companies come in and redevelop a, a neighborhood, which can easily, and, and I watch it happen right in my neighborhood. I mean, I'm in Treme, which is, I think I always hear the history is that it was one of the very first um, uh, African-American neighborhoods in America. And I, I, I look out my, uh, I sit on my porch and watch I don't want this to sound bad, but white girls with baby carriages walked by my house. That, that was not the, uh, my view uh, before Katrina. So I, I think that this is a, was an opportunity. Is it, is it happening more than I think it is? Is it something that should happen? Is it too late for it to happen? And I guess one of the real core questions I have with all the effort that's gone into the notion of affordable housing, we are still talking about a crying desperate need for affordable housing. And it, that is being one of the reasons why so many people who left here on a bus one day haven't come back because they can't because they don't have affordable housing. So I, I just need that mystery. And you know, I have two big mysteries in my life right now that I'm focused on. One, why is a CEO of a big company worth anywhere from 30 to over $100 million a year? I just don't understand that. I just don't get it. And secondly, um, I, I don't understand why with all the effort we've put into affordable housing, why we're not further along in that mission. And of course, right now with the, this new funding coming from the federal government, allegedly, we're gonna get closer to uh, addressing that need. But you tell me, you explain to me the situation as to why we're not further along and are we anywhere closer to uh, addressing that uh, with the, the new um, jobs and, and uh, infrastructure programming that the Biden administration is um, attempting to execute? So my opinions, uh, the, the four forces I mentioned, I'll try to remember them 
that really led to the creation of CDCs on a widespread basis across the country. And CLTs existed before the 70s, but really began to blossom coming out of during the 70s. So CLTs and CDCs really blossomed during the 70s. And the four forces that I noted that preceded them were uh, a general lack of investment in public housing and infrastructure that began to happen in the late 60s and the 70s. That was uh, concurrent with the development of the expressways, which made it easier for whomever to leave the city where one presumably worked and go out to the suburbs where new investment was happening. And that made it easier, particularly for people with resources and money, um, white people in general, on average. Uh, if the figures today tell us that the average New Orleanian household makes between thirty-five dollars to $40,000, the average white family makes approximately sixty-five dollars to seventy, dollars and the average black family in Orleans Parish makes about twenty-five, twenty-seven. dollars those, no, those numbers could only have been worse in the past. And so those numbers could have only been more extreme in the past, which is to say the people who were hopping on the expressways and bringing their tax dollars, tax dollars equal infrastructure, tax dollars when they're redistributed, follow people. If the people were all relocating to the suburbs, then the dollars to go into public housing in the inner core, other amenities and infrastructure in the inner core would have been leaving because lower income people were the only ones left to some degree in the urban core. Uh, the dollars were all going to the suburbs. And so when those things were happening in the late 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, I think in the American South, uh, that trend, you were seeing a decline in the availability and in the uh, uh, quality of public housing and affordable housing in the urban core. And that continued to play out in New Orleans through 2005, Hurricane Katrina. And by the way, I, I really wanna highlight that I don't use the word gentrification too much in my business. I only use it as a signpost. I, Crescent City Community Land Trust is an anti-displacement organization. We're really not a anti-gentrification organization at all. At best, we try to mitigate the effects of gentrification, which is displacement. And the reason I don't really focus on the gentrification word is because it's a red herring in my estimation. The real word, gentrification is just another word for capitalism, right? And so the freedom that the people who, cho who chose to leave the urban core and go out to the suburbs is just what people with resources and what Americans do. It's one of our blessings, it's one of our rights. You have the ability to get up and go. And the same is true when we point to displacement in 2021. There is a racial element to it. There is a class element to it, no question, but it's inherently grounded in the ability of somebody with more money to say, hey, I wanna buy in this neighborhood. I wanna live here. I can afford to renovate this property. I can afford to acquire it. I can afford to pay this rent. And so I will. And people who sell property, people who rent apartments always want to sell and rent to the highest bidder. And so they do. Now, the question we should all be concerned about is why does one group in America tend to have far more resources and capital to make decisions and have the freedoms we describe while other groups, often people of color, often women, have less resources to make decisions and have autonomy. 
Um, but bringing the story more specifically to New Orleans, uh, 2005, 80% of the city flooded, right? And so all of the affordable housing that was both subsidized affordable housing and what is called naturally occurring affordable housing uh, were flooded out and needed to be rebuilt. And the scarcity of housing immediately after Katrina and the high demand for it exacerbated the national gentrification trend which was happening in New Orleans, where you have people packing in, returning to the urban core, and they're bidding up prices for housing and for real estate. And the people, predominantly African-American, um, you know, New Orleans in 2005, African-Americans made even less than they do now. And New Orleans became too expensive for some of the people who wanted to return home. And Simultaneously, new New Orleanians were coming, many of whom have come and they've served our city well as educators and other uh, new employment sectors have been created. The average wage in New Orleans is up since Katrina, but it hasn't kept paced, pace for people with only a high school degree who are in the service industry. Uh, the average wage in New Orleans since 2000 or 2005 has, has, is flat for the average household but the cost of housing and the cost of, of, of renting or for sale is up uh, 50% at least in both categories. And if your wages haven't gone up, but the cost of housing has gone up, that makes you- That's what's made it worse. Yeah. Either you can't afford the housing in the place where you would like to be or you acquire it and then you are called a cost burden by HUD, meaning you spend more than 30% of your income on housing which suggests that you're not allocating it to other areas of your life where you need to make investment like food, um, uh, gas to get to work, your transportation costs, your savings toward retirement, those kind of things. And so, uh, you know, more, more than 40% of the people who live in Orleans Parish are cost burdened, which means the cost of housing is much higher than what their incomes. What percentage? More than 40%. Okay. More than 40% of the people in Orleans Parish uh, are cost burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% uh, of their income on housing, whether it's rent or, or for sale purchases, mortgages. And so CCCLT was created in 2011 to try to preserve some affordable housing in the heart of the city. Uh, everybody who was watching could see that prices, and still are, prices are still climbing and so what could be done to try to impact prices and also just preserve some single family affordable housing, some multifamily apartment units and commercial spaces that could be maintained at reasonable prices that uh, the average low to moderate income family or entrepreneurs coming out of the average low to moderate income New Orleans families which is a, 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 the average household in Orleans Parish is led by a black woman with two to three children. And the income data we've already talked about says she makes around $25,000, $25 dollars to $27,000. And so we're trying to create permanently affordable rental apartments, housing in small businesses that meet the needs of the average Orleans household. And CCCLT was created in 2011 to try to stem the tide of displacement to create a new rung in the affordable infrastructure of New Orleans. 
the community land trust model is not a panacea. There are other forms of affordability, that, affordability that's created through the low income housing tax credit. Uh, the city of New Orleans subsidizes single family housing with, the, with down payment assistance, their annual program, also known as soft second mortgages. Um, and NORA subsidizes the production of affordable housing, single family affordable housing in particular um, through their Orleans housing investment program. What distinguishes what CLTs do from all of those forms of affordable housing is permanent affordability. When we invest in affordable housing, it will be permanently affordable. The other forms of affordability I mentioned all have a compliance period, meaning that eventually the requirement that the subsidy provided to a developer or to a homeowner continues to be deployed in that unit goes away. And so you see a situation like American Can. Yeah, I was thinking of American Can where a lot of people got kicked out. Right, they were, American Can has about 400 units. Uh, they took some public money as a part of the renovation of that old factory, that, Amer that, that aluminum processing facility that made cans. It was turned into apartments in roughly um, 20, in roughly 2001, 2002. The subsidies the city provided there had a 15 year compliance period that supported 50 affordable apartments out of those 400. And so roughly 2016, 2017, the new owner of American Can decided to evict all of the affordable tenants. And that is an example of temporary affordability or, yeah. or- um, It doesn't, it, it's not a solution in the end. It really isn't. It's a, it's a boon to the developer. It had, but, it, it, but it fits very well with our economic system. Temporary affordability does. And it tries to match some of the elements within our, with, with traditional home ownership and with traditional development subsidy activity. And so the community land trust model is different in that it is, um, you know, there's, it's communal. It's, it's the word community is in the name and the, the broader concept is shared equity. Uh, and within that you have condominiums, you have co-ops, cooperative housing. And so all of that is a little different than what traditional American so, so, Julius, I have to ask you at this point, because this has been phenomenally informative for me, and I'm sure my listeners um, who, who like exactly to understand things better, and that's one of the reasons I have something of a following. But uh, we're going to run out of time. I just want to understand, um, can we push a little extra now? Can I get a little extra time? Because what I want to get into is exactly some of your projects that you are now operating and I want to understand where do we go from here and and how again is the is the new Biden program going to impact the dynamics that you're describing and and one thing I don't understand uh, I don't think you gave me a statistic you've given given me a lot of statistics but what percentage of um, affordable housing falls into the category of permanent versus temporary presently in New Orleans and how do you see that ratio changing as a result of new federal commitments? Or am I exaggerating the value of these new federal commitments? That's what, I mean, I don't think anybody really has their arms around <clears throat> how this is gonna roll out <clears throat> and how successful it is, is or isn't going to be. And it's very important for New Orleans. It's, it's critical for all the reasons that you've just given in terms of the average income of a lot of people. So. So the first, what are a couple of your projects and how do you see things going forward with the Biden money? 
So there, there, there is another active community land trust in New Orleans, and that is called uh, Jane Place. And Jane Place, with some support from CCCLT, my organization created the first permanently affordable fourplex in New Orleans. Uh, it's right over in Mid-City. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the, my office above Whole Foods on Broad Street. And uh, three blocks from me is the first permanently affordable apartment building in New Orleans. Uh, Jane Place produced that. Uh, we gave them a little help. Uh, more recently, CCCLT is very proud to have uh, launched the first single family affordable condominium development, single uh, CLT house, traditional CLT single family homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. And so to date, we have sold eight of those homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. And we've got two more, which we expect to sell before the end of summer 2021. And when so, we do- So wait, that, these are multifamilies, is that what you said? No, no, no. Jane Place has created the Not first- Jane Place. Jane Place in Mid-City has created the first multifamily CLT apartment building. Right. And what about Ninth Ward? Lower Nine? In the Lower Ninth Ward is the first- single family, affordable, detached, traditional community land trust community. And so when you talk about community land trust, the typical model is single family detached houses, traditional suburban or whatever the structure, uh, think about this, think about a neighborhood with houses. Uh, the community land trust house looks just like a market rate house next door. The first community of 10 of those in New Orleans have been produced in the Lower Ninth Ward. We've sold eight of them over the last two years. We're gonna sell the last two before the summer is up and we're really proud. We're really excited about the development of the Lower Ninth Ward CLT community. Well, Later here, I'm sorry. We're gonna roll to Broadmoor and create the second community land trust community where we're producing three single family detached affordable condos, also known as traditional CLT homes in partnership with Broadmoor Improvement Association. Okay, now hold on a second, because I want to go back. I want to ask two questions. One, you actually addressed something that I was going to ask because um, I, I, I spent some time in the Ninth Ward. I actually had a house there um, after the a storm for a while that we used. Uh, uh, we rented part of it. It was a double right facing the river and um, we did art projects there. Um, yeah. And um, and so I, I've spent some time in the area uh, and I won't go into detail, but it, it seems to me that when I go through the Lower Ninth, especially on the lakeside of uh, St. Claude, it's still pretty uh, much barren fields. So I was going to ask you, what about Lower Ninth Ward? What's going on there? Is that is that getting is that going to get any better? So you've gone to uh, gone to this Broadmoor model, and I'm glad to hear you what you've done in Lower Nine. But what is is Lower Nine actually going to redevelop, or is it too low and dangerous uh, with you know the expectation of future storms? Uh, as bad as, if not worse than uh, Katrina. I mean, what what is the, um, I hate to, uh, I don't mean to get sidetracked totally, but I, I'm, I'm concerned. It's something I've, I've tracked and watched and worked on and I wanna know what's going on. So you're, you, you, asked, uh, you asked one question, but I think there are two different answers. One answer is that the people who have lived in the Lower Ninth Ward for multi-generations demanded the opportunity to return to their community and reoccupy their homes in 
the politicians and government said, yes, they, we agree. And so people have repopulated the lower ninth ward, uh, you know, and, and, and the, but that being said, the community is not at the population level. It was pre-Katrina. And I do, I do think that some of the forces you just talked about concerns about its, um, you know, its depth below sea level and its propensity to flood, I think have impacted some of the people who might have otherwise returned to the lower ninth ward. But a lot of people have returned to the lower ninth ward. And as you say, in between St. Claude and Bayou Bienvenue, or in between St. Claude heading towards the lake, there are still many vacant lots. There are still many homes that are derelict, but then right next door to it, you see somebody who is rebuilt and is happy to be home. And so the first CL, the CLT model is really built for neighborhoods that are, that are seeing rapid price increases over time, um, which is another, another word, another way of putting gentrification. And so, when the original nonprofit who developed these 10 homes chose to do so with support from philanthropy, I think it was a questionable decision because prices were not, the, the CLT model is built for neighborhoods like Broadmoor, the Seventh Ward, Central City, where prices are going up relatively quickly. That is not the case in the Lower Ninth Ward. Uh, and when prices are going up, it usually implies desirability and abundance of amenities and, good access to transportation networks. A lot of those things don't apply to the Lower Ninth Ward. Yeah. But what the Lower Ninth Ward has in spades is culture, history, and people who love it. Right. And what we were able to do in developing the Lower Ninth Ward CLT homes after we acquired them, they had been operating for rentals as a couple of e for a couple of years, is we were able to price them at such a level that made them a new opportunity for the buyers to own equity and grow, start growing their household wealth at a price which is lower than what those families are paying in rent for comparable space. As you may know, Gene, three bedrooms, two baths, detached rental property anywhere in Orleans Parish is $1,000 to $1,200 at a minimum. In the Lower Ninth Ward, we are selling the traditional CLT house model which I, again, I also like to call a single, single family detached affordable condo, we're selling that for between 50 and $90,000. That means that those families are paying principal interest taxes and insurance for less than $800 a month, less than $700 a month. That means those families in the lower ninth ward have an opportunity to grow their wealth and save money in, in four different ways, three, three ways really. Uh, they, they're, they're gaining appreciation over time on the asset they now own. They're, as they pay down their mortgage, they're essentially putting equity into their homes. And so it's a savings account. And third, those families who were paying $1,000 to $1,200 a month in rent are now paying $600, $700 a month to own. And so they're saving no less than $300 a month. They've essentially got $300 new dollars in their lives. And if they save that, then they're saving $300 a month. If they're investing it in their children's education or in themselves or in a car, then hopefully it's increasing their quality of life. 
And so even though the lower ninth ward CLT development is not the normal CLT development because of the location, it is still a viable community where we are helping add value to the, the families that we are serving in that community. Okay. When, we, when we get to Broadmoor, the homes we'll be selling will be for roughly between, will be around $150,000. And principal interest taxes and insurance on those homes will be comparable to rent if you wanted three bedrooms, two baths. That being said, you can't buy in Broadmoor for less than $250,000. And so we'll be selling that quality of life for 150 with equity, with, the, with ownership. All right, can, I, can I ask you a quick question just for uh, to, to understand? So are you, you're building these homes? You're building these homes, you're, you're designing them, and, and not you personally, but- In Broadmoor, we're doing that in partnership with the Broadmoor Improvement Association, absolutely. So who's actually uh, designing and building these homes? So I don't, I'm not sure if you're asking me what the name of our architecture firm is, but uh, CCCLT, my organization and Broadmoor are working with, have worked with an architect to produce designs that we've agreed on. And Broadmoor is the general contractor. Broadmoor, is, CCCLT has invested capital with Broadmoor Improvement Association and they're serving as the project manager. I'm still left with a, a, a prejudice that I have. Yeah against a model programs as opposed to volume programs, let's say. That's great. I, I appreciate the segue, Gene, because that's exactly where permanent affordability and the community land trust model are in New Orleans. And so we are very consciously describing what we are doing as demonstrations of permanent affordability. CCCLT has a pipeline of nine projects, approximately half of which we've already completed or in the middle of completing. The other half we're still working on. So we have 25 permanently affordable apartments at the Pythian in downtown New Orleans. That's a multifamily structure, mixed income, mixed use building. There's commercial there, there's, there's retail there, there are restaurants, there's office space, and then there's 69 apartments, 25 of which are permanently affordable. We got 10 permanently affordable houses in the lower ninth ward. We have, uh, in partnership with Jane Place, there are four uh, permanently affordable apartments in Mid-City. Uh, as you may know, CCCLT just partnered with the Vokasan family to take their small 3,000 square foot building on St. Bernard Avenue, where it intersects with AP Turo, good old London Avenue when I was a kid, when you were a kid. Uh, it wasn't that, here as a kid, but anyway. <laughs> that 3,000 square foot building is going to be two permanently affordable apartments. And the first floor will be the, Rio, the revitalized Vaucresson Cafe Creole, where they will both make sausage as well as produce the food we all love that we get at Jazz Festival and other festivals and that they used to serve when they had a restaurant in the French Quarter. We what did you call it again? Cafe what? Vaucresson Cafe Creole. Uh, they're a 120-year-old African-American sausage-making family. And we support because they are culture bearers. Part of the work of CCCLT is not only to produce affordability for residential, commercial, for sale, for rent in the heart of the city, 
but it's also to preserve the culture of the city. And I know you're, the organization you're involved with has culture in the first word, right? And uh, the first name, first part of your name is about culture. So you understand the need to preserve it. And we do as well. And so part of our work is to try to invest in the culture of the city in the case of Ocrason is a food culture. But all of these projects are demonstrations. We, uh, on the single, on the multifamily front, the city has recently produced a, a policy uh, in partnership with the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance and the for-profit development community, what the city calls the smart housing mix or inclusionary zoning. And that will produce more permanently affordable multifamily rental units. And so you're beginning, the rules on this are still be, being fleshed out, but you're gonna see more permanently affordable units in the CBD, in the Bywater, in all of the high demand neighborhoods along the river and in the urban core. On the single family front, CCCLT, we are trying to work with the city now to get them to make what is called the down payment assistance program, also known as soft second mortgages open it up so that buyers of CLT homes can tap those subsidies for single family home purchases. Right now, it is not public policy. It is public policy in Atlanta. It's public policy in Houston. It's public policy in most cities around the country that a person with a section eight voucher who wants to buy a house through the section eight home choice voucher program can use that voucher to buy a house but it's not policy in New Orleans. So we're talking to Hano, the Housing Authority of New Orleans about changing how they do business to, and the federal law allows for it to conform with the way to create more options for low-income people to purchase in New Orleans and purchase CLT homes, which are kind of a, a step in between renting and market rate home ownership. The CLT house creates a, or apartment creates a middle step in the middle. And we're trying to get Hano the city of New Orleans and Nora to all extend the subsidies they control to community land trust properties and permanently affordable properties, particularly on the single family front, the single family home front. So how do you feel about how that's going? It's going very slowly, Jean. I, we have some work to do to communicate uh, these national models to the city and to the housing authority but the reality is we're, you know, we're, we have effective development happening at the Pythian. We have it at the, in Mid-City with Jane Place and we've got the Lower Ninth Ward development is been working effectively for two years. The demonstrations are there. We are really looking for the city now to step up and create new options for working people, for low to moderate income people, create a new affordable option in the city, extend their subsidies to this new affordable option. So, so do you feel, uh, go back to my question and, and what triggered me wanting to talk to you at this point in time, do you feel that the, uh, the new federal economic development programs, uh, it, they keep using the word infrastructure, and I think that makes people think of roads and bridges primarily, but hopefully it means a lot more than that, including housing, um, is going to make a difference in expanding on this, your model, your demonstrations? So Maxine, Maxine, is there any connection there at all? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congress lady Maxine, Maxine Waters is calling her bill the Housing is Infrastructure Act, by the way, to address that marketing concern you just noted. Uh, no is the direct answer. I am not aware that money 
within the, or, or resources within the Housing is Infrastructure Act, which is a version of what Biden's already proposed, will specifically focus on permanent affordability or community land trust homes. Now, as cities, as states and cities accept those dollars whenever that legislation or whatever version of it is passed, they will have the option to include permanent affordability and CLT development within their use of it once it gets to the state or to the city. And I will tell you the Louisiana Housing Corporation, just like the city of New Orleans, just like the Housing Authority of New Orleans has been very slow, if not outright no, in terms of embracing permanent affordability in the community land trust model. And I believe that is primarily simply because it is new and that is why we talk about the work we do at CCCLT as demonstrations of permanent affordability. And so we've, we've gone from a mode where we've been producing and demonstrating the model in action. CCCLT is now spending as much time on communications and marketing and getting the word out about what we're doing. So I've that been thinking about that during this whole conversation that what I'm hearing, I wish there was a way of, um, making this more commonplace knowledge because, you know, I have to be honest with you and tell you that when I first came to New Orleans, I came out of New York rental. I was just a renter and I would never have thought for a second about housing, buying a house that just wasn't in my world. My parents lived. You were aware of co-ops. Well, co I, I was aware of co-ops. So I certainly didn't live in one. I mean, I, 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 I'm just saying housing. I got you, but Co-ops are related to CLT homes. They're right, all I get that now, yeah. And it's all a part of just introducing new models. And I wish people in New Orleans and Louisiana were adopting new ideas faster, but we're working on it. And well, that, that's a general problem, isn't it? I mean, a new models is not something that New Orleans embraces as much as... Um, uh, trying to hold on to the past. It's, it's, I, I often say that the past is not past in New Orleans. It is part of our present. And there's a positive side to that culturally, right? But um, in terms of being willing to and, and, and uh, uh, anticipating and supporting innovation, uh, that's a little bit harder. Despite the fact that in our history, we did many very innovative things you know, let's talk about levees and let's talk about all of the different agricultural inventions that made a big difference in, in, in that universe and, and other all kinds of um, innovations that were part of, you know, we were the first city, if I understand, if I remember my history correctly, in America that had public lighting on streets first gas and later electricity. So I, 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 we may not have been the first, but we certainly were one of the first. And so um, there's no reason why we can't be more innovative. And I think my, that the creativity of the city is, is part of um, innovation. And so I, one of the reasons why I'm so committed to culture is not just because you know I love art and I, I work with a lot of artists, but because I believe that it is part of um, innovation, which is critical for any community anywhere in the world at any time in history. I agree with your perspective. And part of the reason why I am here with you today is because this is part of our marketing agenda and getting the word out. And I appreciate you giving me another platform to talk about the demonstrations and the needed that we're doing with partners like Broadmoor Improvement Association and CSED in the Lower Ninth Ward, the uh, Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development, and with Jane Place in Mid-City. 
All of us are working to produce more permanent affordability and demonstrate the model in many contexts. And on that score, I actually have to rotate to my next Zoom gene. <laughs> I know, I see we're pushing 10 and I, basically you're gonna wind up being most of my show <clears throat> because uh, like it or not, I'm gonna try to share uh, all of this with uh, my audience. And sometimes I, I ask them to take a deeper dive and I hope they will. And I look forward to talking with you further about this. Uh, uh, Julia, stay in touch and um, uh, please, when you're rolling out something, uh, uh, keep me informed on it. And uh, we should talk further about, um, we have issues in the cultural community with not having what's going on in our cultural community covered better by the media. I often say that it seems like the only thing they cover are shootings and sports. And um, we have a lot more going on than that. That's and so uh, highlight, uh, what's going wrong often in one community and highlight what is uh, our pastime as opposed to talking about business or real human issues or politics. That yeah. sounds so American, it sounds so New Orleans. Thank you, Jean. Have a Thank great you. day. We uh, had a um, unusual reopening of, of a show um, this past Sunday when we thought we were going to reschedule altogether because there were all these dire predictions of storms and tornadoes and hail and what have you. But I kept watching the weather channels, uh, not the weather channel, but my favorite radar, my radar. And um, I kept saying, you know, I just, I'm not convinced that we're going to get hit. So I said, let's go ahead and open because some people are going to show up. Sure enough, we had a big crowd. It was amazing. And uh, it was a great day, but it was still a soft opening because we did not yet include our star feature event, which is the Mondo Bizarro and collaborative effort that Monique Verdan and Nick Sly and Jeff Becker have put together um, called Invisible Rivers um, with the Float Lab. Plus, Monique Verdan has done a special show called, called you'll have to help me with this now, Return to... Um, I don't have it in front of me. Yakni Cheetah? Cheeto? Return to Yakni Cheeto. I was close. <laughs> um, uh, as a, a, a separate and very uh, related but interesting exhibition that is in the mod gun that Robert Tannen did um, close to the float lab itself. So um, we don't have a ton of time. We're going to do a, a more extended interview on this uh, next week. But I want you to, Modi, give me a kind of um, you know, headline about uh, what Invisible Rivers and uh, Float Lab is all about and what your exhibition in the Mod Gun is all about. Sure. Um, thanks. Uh, just to say that Crevasse 22 is a, a very unique site. And so for us to be able to bring um, the float lab and to, uh, to, to continue to experiment um, with that piece of infrastructure, as well as our developing of um, and, and being in process um, with the Invisible Rivers project. So uh, Mondo Bizarro Productions and the Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange um, which is a program through Another Gulf is Possible, have partnered to, um, to yeah, to experiment with 
um, a piece of infrastructure we're calling the Float Lab, which has the potential for performance, for exhibition, um, something that can be used both on land or on water. Um, and uh, we're kind of thinking of it as, a, as, as something that also could be used um, to harvest seafood, um, to collect data, or to be used eventually if in time of need um, as a just recovery vehicle um, or, or, or transport system. Um, so yeah, all of those ideas are, are in place, um, but we have this really beautiful exhibition called Floating Cities, um, which we shared a few years back, which is a collaborative um, effort of many different peoples as well. Um, uh, Joisha Dutta, who's a collaborator of mine with Another Gulf, as well as um, Anthony Fontenot and Jacob Rosenzweig, who are two architects and deep thinkers who have been um, contemplating what it's like to live in a place that's becoming more water than land. And, um, you know, the last 15, 16, um, always and forever here has been these cycles of storms and, um, and the river. Um, and living with water is something that we're we're trying to to explore and experiment with in these new times with new challenges. So, um, and just to say that um, the Return to Yakni Shido exhibition uh, was curated by Michelle Verisco, who's a brilliant artist um, and an environmental educator and, and an educator, um, and uh, Raymond Moose Jackson, who is a, a, a poet, performer, a Renaissance man, um, and the Neighborhood Story Project. Um, and so Return to Yakni Shido Homa Migrations is a book that came out, which is a collaborative book um, and um, myself, as well as uh, Homa elders, Anise and Jane Verdin, as well as my little cousin, Alison Rodriguez, and then um, incredible, you know, local performers here uh, in Bulbuncha, uh, Kathy Randalls and Nick Sly also um, contributed wow. to this uh, capture. Of, um, talent, very authentic and, and uh, meaningful talent. That's great. Yeah, and so to say that the float lab is really in an experimental phase, and we're um, we're we're thinking of it. You know, it, it's not uh, it's not just for us. We're building it with community for community, and um, you know, in 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 this place at the end of the Mississippi River, where we're having hard decisions that are being made, and we're up against um, hurricane season right around the corner, and that reminder that we're in a vulnerable place, but also also, um, how can we inspire adaptation and um, and how do we do it in community is a big part of this project. So it is an installation um, for a moment that is fluid and growing and connected to many different um, different individuals and other projects. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to being at the crevasse because that's a very special site in well, the history of the river. Well, speaking of the site, of course, the history, for those who are not familiar, um, is that it's the site of a major breach or crevasse in the uh, levee that resulted in a flooding of the area and um, created a very deep, like 45 foot deep um, pond where there once was uh, simply a bayou. Um, so you're on land right now, but I think you're hoping that maybe you can get out on the water. Is that right? 
That's right. Um, we're uh, we have floated uh, the float lab um, before, and we're um, we're we're yeah in an experimental phase. So, getting into the crevasse is uh, kind of a next step, and um, and then yeah, thinking about a series of of ways that um, that we can both experiment and to have activations and to. Um, to have community come out, um, to be outside. I mean, I think this is um, an exciting moment. Um, of course, we're all wanting to be safe and be careful as um, as the world seems to be shifting a little bit after after being in quarantine for for quite some time. But um, but the 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 lands of Saint Bernard Parish and the riverbanks there. Um, are so beautiful uh, in and of themselves and then all of the art um, that is 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 also on the grounds and in the river house so we're really honored to um, to be able to be in this experimental phase and to be sharing with folks and to be in conversation um, about where where the float lab grows and um, and how invisible rivers continues to develop well, I have to say that I think it's the experimental aspect of what you're doing that thrills me the most because there's nothing like um, continuing to do something new and different and um, evolving and unpredictable um, for really getting everybody's juices flowing and thinking about um, um, other ways of telling the story about this, this land that we live on um, and water that we live on um, that is emerging as we speak. And we really have to understand more and more how we work with it. I don't think you know this, Monique, but I worked for, um, I guess, about five years with America's Wetland um, uh, as an effort to try to get the word out about what was happening in our marshes. And for me, it was very personal because I was out in the early 70s in the um, Cameron Parish area and uh, out on the water in part doing a story about people living without energy because it was during an energy crash. And a, a, a man who was out crabbing said, um, hey, lady, if you want to tell the story of what's going on here, be sure and tell people about how the marshes are disappearing. It was 1973. And I started going to environmental um, meetings and um, was not hearing about it. And so um, it took some time for people to really understand and embrace the challenge that we're faced with. But what you guys are doing, I think, really brings it home. Art has a way of, of, of kind of working its way into people's consciousness in a totally different way than, um, you know, newspaper articles, for example, do. So I, I really think what you're doing is important and I'm really uh, excited about it. But I, I'm also really excited to see what happens when you try to get out on the water there. And um, yeah, I mean, the dream is, um, is how can we how can we find sustainable solutions? And um, we're really excited about um, experimenting with how we can use uh, regenerative energy to to move this vessel and to to power our infrastructure that we'll need for performances or, um, you know, just thinking about last hurricane season and that like, oh, having a charging station is very convenient when there is no power. Right. Um, so so we're really, um, you know, I, I think that 
it's not just the loss of our wetlands that's happening right now. It's that our seas are rising and um, and our climate is changing and that's not going to go away anytime soon. So how do we lean into our imaginations um, and also call out those who have that local knowledge um, and information that can help to inform the solutions that we really need? And I think that the float lab is this question of like, oh, we have this kind of blank canvas. What can we do with it? And um, and really, I'm excited about that unknown um, and excited about those relationships that can can help to build bridges and to um, yeah to find solutions. Well, let me. Um, we have such a little uh, short time today. We'll have more time next week, but uh, I do want to uh, make sure everybody knows that we basically. Uh, we'll have our uh, reopening of the Crevasse 22 River House site, which is a sculpture garden and an art center, with all of this new activation by uh, Monique, your team. And um, that will be this Sunday, not Mother's Day, but the next Sunday, the 16th from 12 to 5. Nice block of time. And believe me, you will hang out there. I mean, it is it is just a very peaceful, beautiful spot. It's very much classic Louisiana landscape with you know the oak trees and hanging moss and migrating birds and lots of um, very interesting people such as Monique. Thank you so much for being able to put some time in today. And I look forward to talking with you all more next week. Thanks so much, Jean. So this is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, um, what people are talking about. And um, I hope you enjoyed um, that very informative, but I'm, I'm, I hope you slog through um, the details because they were very important that Julius Kimbrough offered us. And Monique Fredan is an incredible creative spirit, and I was so happy to have her. So um, see you all next week. <laughs>